So we're continuing this morning in this study of, uh, of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. We've titled this series, Rebuilding a Healthy Church. And as we've been exploring for the past several months, Paul had planted a church in Corinth, in Greece, uh, and they had quickly become pretty spiritually unhealthy after he left. And so much of Paul's uh, letter to them here in 1 Corinthians is for the purpose of diagnosing and correcting those various issues that have arisen. But if Paul deems that a church is unhealthy, and he, and he writes with this purpose of, of rebuilding and restoring it to health, then it must mean that there's a, a means by which a church's spiritual health can be measured. So, how would you determine whether or not a church is healthy? Is it how big it is? How much it, it grows? Is it the extent of its influence? Is it the, the depth of the teaching, the knowledge, the wisdom? Is it the presence of extraordinary spiritual gifts? See, that, that's what the Corinthians seem to think. And that's what is going to bring us to 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, chapter 13 is sandwiched between shocker, chapters 12 and 14, uh, which is Paul's discussion of spiritual gifts in the life of the church. And that had been something of a problem in Corinth, apparently. Specifically, some of the Corinthians were exalting particular spiritual gifts, especially the gift of speaking in tongues, uh, higher than the rest and using it as a mark of spiritual health or spiritual maturity. So if you spoke in tongues, you were the most spiritual person in the church, or so the narrative went. Now, chapter 12, we've seen the past couple weeks, Paul, Paul's correcting this uh, thinking by reminding the Corinthians that it's, it's actually the Holy Spirit who has distributed these gifts to God's people according to His will. Not everybody has the same gifts. Not everybody has all the gifts, and that's by His design. God has gifted and arranged the, the members of the church to function according to His will and purpose with their gifts. And so, no member is more important or more vital than another, as Austin so powerfully illustrated for us last week. Rather than being used for unity and building up the church, the Corinthians were turning these gifts into yet another cause for division and pride, which is the exact opposite of their spirit-given purpose, to build up the body. And so at the end of chapter 12, Paul encouraged the Corinthians to earnestly desire the greater gifts for the purpose of building up the body and to do so in a more excellent way. Then at the beginning of chapter 14, he picks up this same idea again. He says, pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts. So, Contrary to what you may have heard when you heard this passage read at a wedding, 1 Corinthians 13 is not Paul taking a commercial break to talk about the importance of love in marriage. It's a continuation of Paul's discussion in which he's explaining the importance of love in the church and especially as it relates to spiritual gifts. It is this love that is the more excellent way that the Corinthians are to pursue. Paul's point here is this, 
contrary to the Corinthians' perspective, it is not gifts, but love that is the true measure of a church's spiritual health. It is love that is the true measure of a church's spiritual health. This passage, which we just read a few moments ago, breaks into into three parts. So first, in verses 1 to 3, Paul establishes the priority of love over other things that could be thought to be measures of health. Then in verses 4 to 7, Paul enumerates the the properties of love. That is, he outlines the, the characteristics of true biblical love that is to be that measure of spiritual health. And then finally, in verses 8 to 13, he explains that a central reason that love takes priority over gifts as the true measure of spiritual health is that while spiritual gifts are transient, love is eternal and permanent. So, the priority of love, the properties of love, and the permanence of love. First then, verses 1 to 3, Paul establishes the priority of love over anything else that could be thought to accurately measure spiritual health. And, and as he does this, he's, he's not saying that these other things, uh, like spiritual gifts, are not important. In fact, he's written chapter 12 and then chapter 14 to talk about why they are important and why they need to be practiced according to God's design. The Holy Spirit gave these gifts to the church to, to build up the body. So they are important. But even though they're important, they're not measures of health or maturity, but love is. So he begins by addressing head-on the the gift that was causing the biggest problem in Corinth. Look at verse 1. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Leave to the side for, for the moment exactly what the gift of speaking in tongues is and whether it continues uh, today. Paul's going to come back and talk about that more in chapter uh, 14. So as a parting gift to Pastor Tom, I'm going to let him tackle that one, uh, and you can direct all of your questions to him. So however we understand the nature of speaking in tongues, it was the gift that the Corinthians were especially exalting as a sign of spiritual health. If a person spoke in tongues, they reason, then they must be especially spiritual. But Paul cuts that argument off right away. You can speak in tongues all you want. You can even speak in the tongues of angels if there is such a thing. But, but if you don't have love, you are a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. That is, you're, you're nothing but an aimless, purposeless annoyance. Anything but an example of spiritual health. But it's not just those who exalt speaking in tongues who who run the risk of misidentifying the true marks of spiritual health. Look at verse 2. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. As Paul now Uh, includes a number of other spiritual gifts that he mentioned in chapter 12, prophecy, knowledge, faith. And you can have any of these other gifts 
And you can have them in the fullest measure, right? Look, if you could know all mysteries, have all knowledge, have all faith, you could have all of these gifts in fullest measure and yet not be spiritually healthy. In fact, he says more than that. He, he doesn't just say, if I have all these things but I don't have love, I'm not as healthy or mature as I ought to be. He says, if I have all of this but I do not have love, I am nothing. Now, Paul's already said in chapter 1, if you think back a few months in chapter 1, Paul said at the very beginning of the book that the Corinthians were not lacking in any spiritual gift, but they were sorely lacking in love. And while they thought that their spiritual gifts made them something, Paul is saying that their lack of love made them nothing. And then Paul expands his point even further. Look at verse 3. And if I give my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. So he moves beyond spiritual gifts. It says your life might be characterized by tremendous generosity, sacrifice, giving your possessions, giving up your life maybe to be martyred, giving your body to be burned, courage for the cause of Christ. But if you have those things but don't have love, it's of no benefit. So the Corinthians thought that they knew who was truly spiritual. They were evaluating things according to, to their mindset. They thought those who are gifted, those who are knowledgeable, those who are wise, those who are bold, those who are sacrificial, these are the truly spiritual people. These are the people who are really close to God. But Paul drives a stake through the heart of that worldly thinking. Because it's not these things, but love that is the real measure of spiritual health. And this is really nothing more than what the Lord Jesus Himself taught us. So on the night before His death, Jesus said to His disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So if we want to know whether a church, whether or not our church is healthy, then it's not first and foremost a question of how many people we have or how deep the teaching is or how many Bible studies are held or how many people serve or volunteer or how many theology books we read or how many baptisms we have or how many churches we plant or how many missionaries we send. These are all, these are all good things that we want to encourage and celebrate, but in and of themselves, they are not inevitable signs of spiritual vitality and maturity. No, it's, it's by our love for one another that people will know that we are Jesus' disciples. And by implication, if we do not love one another, people have little corroborating evidence to prove that our profession of faith in Christ is anything but hollow and hypocritical. It is by our love for one another that our true spiritual condition is seen. So, friends, I wonder how the, the world would look at us, what, what they would say. If others were to 
to look at us as Christians, to look at Riverstone Church, what would they say about us? Think about the past two years in particular. How would others evaluate us? Would they say, truly, these are Jesus' disciples? See how they love one another. Or would they be more likely to say, how could they be Jesus' disciples? See how they blast one another on social media. Would they say, truly, these are Jesus' disciples? See how they love one another. Or would they say, how could they be Jesus' disciples? Look how all they do is discourage disparage, dishonor, doubt, and divide from one another over everything. Love is the true measure of a church's spiritual health. But what is love? If this is the the mark by which we measure a church's health, then it's imperative that we know exactly what it is. And, and here we have a problem because so often our definition of love is not shaped by what the Scriptures say love is, but by our own experience or our assumptions or by what the world tells us love is. Right? Love is just something or someone we really enjoy. Or Love is just feeling warm feelings about something or someone. Or as our world might say, love is simply the unquestioned affirmation and celebration of whatever anyone thinks or feels or desires. So when we hear that a church's health is measured by love, we must be careful that we don't import these distorted definitions of what love is. Because if the Apostle John says, God is love, then it is not us or others or the world, but God who gets to define what love is. That's what we find in verses 4 to 7. In these famous verses, Paul enumerates these these properties or, or characteristics of true, biblical, godly love. And, and as often as you've heard these verses at at weddings, as we read through these, these properties of love, I want you to do your best to remember that, that in the first instance, these are not describing the love that is supposed to exist between a husband and a wife, though, of course, I think there's application to that. But no, Paul intends for this to be a description of the love that is to characterize all our relationships and supremely those with other Christians, those in the church. So as we work through this this list of of properties, I want you to notice two things. I want you to notice how many of these characteristics clearly reflect the attributes of God Himself. That is, to to love is to be like God or to be like Christ. And second, as, as much as they are clearly reflective of God's own character, notice how many of them are clearly opposite to what the Corinthians were doing, and perhaps opposite to our own behavior as well. Start in verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love uh, bears with and actively seeks the good of others. And this patience and kindness are both attributes of God. You could just as easily say God is patient and God is kind. 
when God reveals himself to Moses in Exodus 34, he says that he is a God compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, patient, and abounding in loving kindness. Right from the start, Paul says that if you're going to be characterized by love, you're going to be godly. To love is to be like God. Continuing in verse 4. Love is not jealous, and it does not brag. See, this is exactly what was going on with the Corinthians. As they thought about spiritual gifts, many of them were, were bragging about their superior spirituality because they, uh, they had more extraordinary gifts, and others were envious of those gifts because of the, the status that it gave those people in the community. But neither of those groups was operating out of love. See, Love does not exalt self and look down on others because of what they don't have, nor does it look down on self and exalt others because of what they do have. Rather, love denies self and seeks the good of others. Closely related to this, Paul goes on to say, love is not arrogant. The word arrogant has been used multiple times in the letter already seems to have been a hallmark of the, the Corinthian church. In fact, this, this word arrogant, this Greek word arrogant, is used seven times in the New Testament, and six of those times are in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul mentions that there are some in the church who are arrogant and who are puffed up, same word, in favor of one against another. At the beginning of chapter 5, he rebukes them because instead of mourning over this sin that's in their midst... He says, instead, you are arrogant. Again, in chapter 8, when the Corinthians boast about how much knowledge they have, Paul reminds them that this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. We actually see the same kind of arrogance back in chapter 1 as Paul addresses the church dividing into these factions and boasting in these leaders that they're, that they're following. This arrogance is characteristic of, of the Corinthians. But, but Paul says Christians are to be the humblest of all people because they recognize both their deep sinfulness and that their salvation has nothing to do with what they bring. Rather, as we read in chapter 1, it is by His doing that you are in Christ Jesus. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Verse 5, love does not act unbecomingly. This is what Paul warned the Corinthians against in chapter 7. He's giving instructions about uh, men who may be acting unbecomingly or disgracefully toward a woman they're engaged to marry. Uh, it also uh, might point to chapter 11 about men and women acting dishonorably or disgracefully in, in public worship. Again, the Corinthians Behavior is the polar opposite of the love that should mark the church. Love acts honorably towards others, seeking to protect rather than to exploit. So in verse 5, love does not seek its own. Saw this in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, where the Corinthians were 
seen being more concerned about exercising their freedom in Christ than showing care and concern for the welfare of their brothers and sisters. They were more willing to bulldoze their fellow church members in order to get their own way. And so Paul corrects them in chapter 10. He says, let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor. And again, this after all is just what God the Son Himself did, isn't it? Jesus said that He did not come to be served, that is, He did not come to seek something for Himself, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Again, verse 5, love is not provoked and does not take into account a wrong suffered. It's possible that these two could be a reference to the beginning of chapter 6 where Paul rebukes the Corinthians for taking one another to court. He said it would actually be better if you, brothers, would just allow yourself to be wronged than to, than to drag one another before, before secular courts. And this stands in stark contrast to the character of, of God, who we repeatedly are told are is, is not provoked. He's not easily angered, which apparently the Corinthians were, but God is slow to anger. It's also worth noting here that this word, taking into account, it's one word in Greek. It's the same word that Paul uses often, and especially in the book of Romans, to describe what God does not do with our sin. Romans 4, Paul writes, quoting Psalm 32, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Same word. And he uses it again in 2 Corinthians 5, so his next letter to the Corinthians, when he tells them that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself by not counting their trespasses against them. So, friends, if you are trusting in Jesus for your salvation, then God's own love abounds to you in that He does not take into account a wrong suffered. He does not count our sins against us because He counts them as being paid fully by the death of Christ and counts all of Christ's perfect obedience and righteousness to us as if we had lived personally His perfect life. Verse 6, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Contrary to what our culture might say, true love is, is not a blanket acceptance or affirmation or celebration or promotion of whatever anyone feels or thinks or desires. But you hear this in our culture, right? It's unloving for you to tell somebody that you think what they're choosing to do or what they desire is wrong, right? But if, if this is true, that love does not rejoice in unrighteousness but rejoices with the truth, then it would be remarkably unloving to see someone doing something harmful to themselves or others even if they wanted to do it and not say something about it. And in fact, really, the letter of 1 Corinthians is Paul doing much of this. He's writing not out of a lack of love, but the presence of love to correct what he sees as unrighteous in their practice. 
He wants to help them rejoice with the truth and not with unrighteousness. Hence his letter and sometimes strongly worded correction. And this sets a sort of guardrail for our definition of love. A church that is marked by true biblical love will not celebrate what God says is evil and will rejoice at what God says is good. In verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. That love believes all things and hopes all things means that love is not marked by suspicion and doubt. That it bears all things and endures all things means it's not brittle. It doesn't give up easily. It perseveres. That's what true biblical love looks like. And I'd argue that there's, there's maybe one of these characteristics that, that succinctly captures the essence of what this biblical love is, and that's in verse 5. Love does not seek its own. Love, true biblical love is centrifugal, not centripetal. Or back in physics class studying roller coasters. Love, as defined by the world, pulls inward, loving that which satisfies our internal desires. But real love, biblical love, does not pull inward toward our desires. It moves outward toward others. Paul alluded again to this idea in chapter 10, as we saw already, when he explains that this principle that he wants the Corinthians to live by is to let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. And that's really just another way of him saying, love one another. It is this love that motivates him to give up his rights for others, as we saw in chapter 9. Love is a resolve to seek your neighbor's good even over your own. And since it would be a tremendous disappointment to all of you if I didn't quote a dead theologian, I will do so now in order to fulfill all righteousness. Thomas Aquinas, the great medieval theologian, said it this way, to love is to will the good of another. To love is to will the good of another. Surely this is not our natural disposition. Sin causes us to turn in on ourselves. And left to ourselves, we will love ourselves at the expense of others. I think there's quite a bit of what we call love or what our culture calls love, right? And it's not just in our culture, it's in our own lives too, right? It's not just out there, it's in here. Quite a bit of what is called love that is really only a selfish using of others for our own benefit. But love is defined by God, on the other hand, is selfless. It seeks another's good over and sometimes at the expense of our own. And this love is really just an echo of God's own love for us, a love most brilliantly exhibited in the life and death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Consider what we read through the New Testament of God's showing His love for us in what He gives. 
John 3.16, for God so loved the world, or maybe better, God loved the world in this way, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Or Galatians 2.20, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Or Ephesians 5.2, walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. Or 1 John 3.16, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. Or 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God's love is a self-giving, sacrificial love. God loves us in giving himself to us and for us, and supremely so in Christ. And spiritual health is is ultimately to be, to be fully like Christ. Spiritual maturity is to become conformed to the image of the Son, that it will certainly be marked by the same kind of selfless, sacrificial love we see in and through Christ Himself. And we don't drum this up from within ourselves, right? This, this love is called forth as a response to, to God's own love to us in Christ. So if you find yourself lacking in love, don't focus on trying to force yourself to love through gritted teeth. Rather, look to Christ and dwell on His selfless love toward you. You may find your heart melted into Christ-like love for others. That brings us to the final section of this chapter in verses 8 to 13 which Paul explains the permanence of love. Gifts are not marks of spiritual health because they are transient, they're temporal, they're partial. Love is the true measure of a church's spiritual health because it's permanent, an eternal characteristic of Christ-likeness. You can be like Christ without gifts, but you cannot be like Christ without love. The gifts, while given and empowered by the Spirit for the church's good, will not be distinguishing marks of God's people into eternity, but love will be. In verses 8 to 12, we see Paul make the case that, that these gifts, which the Corinthians were so exalting as markers of true spirituality, are really just temporary features of the present age. Look, starting in verse 8. If there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there, are, if there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, I think that's the perfect, the return of Christ, when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. That is, these, these gifts which the Corinthians were so highly exalting and esteeming are not permanent fixtures for God's people. They're, they're transient. Regardless of whether or not you think these, these extraordinary gifts, sign gifts like speaking in tongues or 
prophecy ceased in the first century or, or won't cease until the coming of Christ, the text makes it clear that they will cease. They're not eternal. They're temporary, partial. And so when all believers of Jesus Christ are finally glorified upon His return, there is something that will not be there and therefore will not matter. These spiritual gifts that the Corinthians are so arrogant about. In the following two verses, 11 and 12, Paul uses two illustrations to, to describe this. Look at verse 11. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. But when I became a man, I did away with childish things. So he's making the point that when a child reaches maturity, he or she no longer acts like a child, or at least they shouldn't. The gifts are like that. They are entirely appropriate and suited for exactly where we are right now. They're training wheels given by the Spirit to help us and build us up until we reach full maturity and conformity to Christ. But once we reach that point, they're no longer necessary. So they can't be measures of maturity. Verse 12, he uses another illustration, that of a mirror to make his point even more. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then the return of Christ face to face. Now I know in part, it's partial, but then I will know fully just as I also have been fully known. See, in a mirror you see indirectly. You see a reflection rather than seeing directly. He says there's going to come a day when we won't walk by faith. We will walk by sight. A day when we will not experience communion with Christ in a mediated and partial way, but a, an immediate and complete way. We'll see Him face to face. And so the gifts won't be necessary because Christ Himself will be there. As we read in Revelation 21, a number of months ago, that great summit of the Bible is we will see His face. In contrast, it's love that is the mark of spiritual health because it will permanently characterize God's people. The beginning of verse 8, while the, the gifts cease or are done away with, love never fails, or maybe better, love never ceases. Right? This differs sharply from the gifts. They cease when the perfect comes. That is, when we're completely, gloriously resurrected at the return of Christ, they, they cease, but love does not. And so he ends summarizing what he's written, but now faith and hope and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. The gifts pass away, these virtues the greatest of which is love, remains. This love will not cease, but will continue to mark the people of God into eternity. See, Apostle John says, we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. So when, when He comes again, when the perfect comes, we shall be permanently, preeminently marked by perfect love. So love is what spiritual maturity looks like because it is what Christ 
is like. And if it's to be true in eternity, then it is likewise the ultimate measure of spiritual health now in the church. And with that, Paul moves into chapter 14 and gives his summary instruction based on this truth. If this is true, Corinthians, then what you ought to do is pursue love. Earnestly desire the gifts, but pursue love that you might use those gifts to build up the body, not for your own benefit, but seeking the good of others. Friends, God has richly blessed Riverstone Church. He's given this congregation tremendous gifts, resources, opportunities for gospel ministry. And I've had the privilege of witnessing it for the last eight and a half years firsthand. And as thankful as I am for that, it is not those things by which we ought to measure ourselves. When I'm in Virginia and I hear reports about the saints at Riverstone Church, the primary metric by which I will know and be confident of the health of this body is not its growth, it's not its size, it's not the number of converts and baptisms, it's not the number or quality of the programs, it's not the percentage of people who are serving or are in Bible studies or small groups, it's not the number of churches you plant or the number of missionaries you send, and it's not the number of dollars you give. All of these things can be good and important in their own way, but friends, my chief concern for you will be to know how are they loving one another. It would be my great joy to hear of your faithfulness to what we read in 1 John 3, 23. This is God's commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Believe in the name of God's Son, Jesus Christ, as he has freely offered to lost sinners in the glorious gospel of the grace of God. And by believing, receive life in his name, and then having crossed from death to life, friends, love one another. That is the true measure of a healthy church, and it is my parting exhortation to you. And we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together now. You should have received a packet on your way in. If you did not, uh, one of our ushers would be happy to to grab them uh, for you and and give one to you if you would just raise your hand if you don't have one. Invite uh, Benjamin and Michelle up. We're going to uh, sing together in a few moments as we reflect on the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, I'd remind you, is a celebration that is reserved for those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation and are resting on Him. And if that's not you this morning, we, we are very happy that you are here. We're very happy that you are worshiping with us and, and hearing the Word of God, but we'd ask that you please refrain from partaking with us this morning. Uh, this is only for those who are trusting in Jesus. As much as we talk about love, it's It's important to remember that while our love for God and our love for one another are indispensable measures by which which we are known to belong to Jesus, our love for God and one another is not the means by which we become His people. We love because He first loved us. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and gave His Son.
to be the propitiation for our sins, a wrath-bearing sacrifice that brings life and salvation, not by the quality or quantity of our love, but simply by us resting our trust upon the Lord Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. And so the Lord's Supper is a symbol of God's love for us, most clearly and profoundly revealed in Christ's death in our place for our sins. In a way, the Lord's Supper is like a wedding ring. So I went through and told you 1 Corinthians was not about weddings, so I'm going to use this illustration. The Lord's Supper is like a wedding ring. It's a visible, tangible sign of God's love for us, the love that gave Christ on our behalf, the love by which Christ himself gave himself up, the love that will not let us go and the love that keeps us to the end. God's love is not fickle or uncertain. See, as surely as you hold the bread and the cup in your hand, so surely Christ loves you and gave himself to pay for all of your sins with his precious blood. You can say, how do I know that God loves me? If you're a Christian, you can look at these emblems of the Lord's death and say, here is love. I invite you to take a few moments to reflect on God's love for you displayed supremely and all-sufficiently in the death of Christ in your place. As we do, Benjamin will begin to to play in a few moments. Uh, He will lead us in the singing of this old Welsh hymn, Here is Love, and then we'll take the elements together afterwards. Grace and love like mighty rivers. 
who loved us and released us from our sins by your blood. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, we give you thanks. And so by this sign that you have given us to celebrate together, seal your promises and assure, assure us of your love. Bind us together in unity as members of your body that we might love you supremely and love one another sacrificially. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would take the bread.
take and eat, the body of Christ was broken instead of yours. If you would take the cup. Take and drink. The blood of Christ was shed instead of yours. As often as we eat of this bread and we drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. Now, my beloved friends, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. God be with you.